Hello, GBC Church family. It's good to be with you today, and uh, today we're looking forward to opening up our church once again for services, and we'll be practicing uh, social distancing and, and the whole nine yards, but uh, we're looking forward to getting together as the body of Christ for the first time in several weeks. And we will be having uh, communion today. We have individually packaged uh, communion cups and bread all sealed up, uh, ready to go. And so if you want to partake in communion with us, uh, you can do so. Today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians once again. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we'll be looking at verses 16 and 18. And I have to let you know, today's going to be a little shorter uh, message due to uh, what we have jam-packed into our morning service. We, we made the whole service a little shorter because our children are in here with us and uh, so in respect to the parents and, and keeping the young ones in our worship time the whole time, instead of going to children's church like they usually do, they'll be in here the entire time, we kind of made things a little shorter today. But we're so glad you could join us today for our time of teaching from God's Word. And so today we want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 to 22, but uh, we're going to be focusing on verses 16 to 18. And I want to remind you, we find ourselves in the study here of this book, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we're dealing with the subject of fellowship and the Lord's table or communion. Uh, I've entitled the sermon today, Understanding Our Fellowship in Christ. And so it's just an uh, introductory message to prepare our hearts for those of us who are gathered here physically so that we can be prepared to take our communion time together after the message. So in way of review, I don't want you to forget what Paul has been talking about here in the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, he's been dealing with the subject of idolatry and Christian liberty. Uh, specifically, is it okay for Christians in the church of Corinth to eat meat that was sacrificed to idols? That's really what the, the whole issue arose around. And uh, Paul's conclusion was very straightforward as he asked this, answered their question. His conclusion was, and theirs by the way, was as well, since an idol is nothing... In other words, there's only one true God. An idol is just that. It's an idol. It's meaningless. It can't do anything for you. It's just an object. And since God doesn't lay down specific guidelines of what Christians can eat or shouldn't eat, we're not under that, um, the guidelines of the Old Testament law anymore in that respect. We're free to eat whatever we want. And, and God created all of it himself. And so food in and of itself is not bad or it's not evil. And so since those two things are true, the idea that an idol is nothing and that we can eat whatever we like, Paul concludes that Christians, uh, they do have the liberty or the right to eat meat, which has been sacrificed to idols, say in a pagan worship service. Uh, but he does, however, lay down a very basic principle. And he does that earlier in Corinthians, in chapter 9. And basically he says, even though I am free from all, I'm, I'm free to do whatever I want, but I made a servant to all. Now remember, the church of Corinth was all about me. <laughs> they put themselves first in every respect. And they, they didn't have a corporate ideology when it came to their own Christian liberty. They said, hey, it's all about us and that's it. But we see even in our text today, you're going to see the word we, we, we over and over again. And so we have to understand that the church is made up of individuals who come together to celebrate and to worship Christ. In other words, it's not always just about your right to do something. But we have to take into consideration those around us, take into consideration others and, and um, in and out of the body of Christ, by the way. We don't ever want to purposely offend someone just because we have the right to do something. Because that will potentially hinder our effectiveness as a Christian in evangelism 
for Christ, and we would never want to do that. So Paul calls for us to reign in our Christian liberty at times for the sake of Christ. He specifically tells the believers at Corinth that we, we shouldn't use our Christian liberty to try to get as close to the edge of sin as possible. Even though we're allowed to do many things, we're free to do things, we shouldn't creep up to the edge of sin. That might end badly for us. It could possibly disqualify us from the race and ministry and so forth. And in chapter 9, verse 27, he reminds us of that. As he closes out that chapter, he says, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control. Why? Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So then in chapter 10, the first couple verses there, he begins to recall the history of Israel as an example of what happened to them when they sought to go after their evil desires instead of righteousness. And we went through all that in our mess, previous messages. And last week, we looked at verses 14 and 15 in chapter 10, and we looked at a message entitled, The Biblical Implications of Idolatry. And this is kind of a theme that's going on throughout the rest of this book. But we looked in depth at idolatry last week, and it's many forms, by the way. But at the end of the, the message, we concluded several points of how idolatry may affect us. And remember, idolatry is not just bowing down to some object. I, idolatry can creep into our lives in a myriad of ways. But we, we said basically four things. We said, first of all, idolatry brings defilement. We saw that in Exodus chapter 20. We also said it brings guilt on everyone who is involved in it. It, it, it affects the whole body. And then also, idols, we recognize they can't help you anyway, so why even have anything to do with them? They're just helpless. They can't do anything. And last thing we said was that it brings God's vengeance upon unbelievers and his chastening upon believers. Well, with that being said, we're caught up to where we have been in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And so I want to read our text for us this morning, and then we'll pray and begin our study in God's Word in preparation of our communion time. And I'll just say, if you're not gathered here physically with us today, um, ideally, the best practice is to come together as the church for communion, because that's what the Bible teaches. But I'm sure the Lord's understanding, if, if you're not able to come out and you're at home, you can get some juice and cracker and uh, have your own little communion service right there. It kind of doesn't accentuate the idea of being together with the body for fellowship, but you can still commemorate the Lord's death till he comes. And so let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse, I'm going to begin in verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation or fellowship, koinonia, in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. We're going to stop there for this morning. I want to ask you if you join me in a word of prayer. Father, we come before you and we ask, Lord, that you would open our hearts and our minds to your word. Help us to apply and prepare our hearts for our communion time this morning. Father, we're so thankful that we can regather here as the body of Christ and Lord, I just pray that you would guard us, that you would help us to use safe practices. We would never want someone to get sick. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be considerate of those around us. But Father, it's so good to be together as the body of Christ, especially when we can participate together in a time of communion. Lord, we pray for our country during this time. We pray for all the evil and darkness that is all around us. And yet, Lord, we know that you're sovereign over all these things. And Father, we pray for those in leadership over us that you would give them wisdom to persevere, to do the right thing. Father, we thank you for 
our government that is there for our protection. And we pray against those who would want to dismantle it. And so, Father, we ask that you would just move and work in a mighty way. Apply your healing hand to the anger and the rage that is going on in our society. We thank you and pray that you would just bless our time in your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what Paul is saying here in this context is, in the name of Christian liberty, do not, do not pursue idolatry. As a matter of fact, he says, flee from it. It's one thing, perhaps, to eat you know, a piece of meat that you, you bought in a butcher shop and you don't know where it came from. Maybe it was sacrificed to an idol or not. Or, or maybe you uh, went to somebody's house and they had meat that was sacrificed to an idol. And so you wouldn't want to offend them. Paul says it's okay to eat that in that, in, in that situation. Um, but on the other hand, it's not okay, Corinthians, to say, well, if that's okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols, let's just go participate in all these pagan feasts. <laughs> and that's what they were doing. They used their Christian liberty to bring them closer to the worship of idols. And so they began to push the point closer and closer to these idol feasts and celebration, and they were just kind of hanging around with their old crowd all of a sudden. You know, you don't ever want to go there. That's not a good place to be. And that basically becomes the theme of what Paul is saying here in verses 14 to 22, that a believer should avoid the idolatry of the world. And as a basis for this argument, he uses the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, communion. Now, communion is something that's very basic to the church. It's very fundamental to the church. Uh, it's very vital in the life of a community of believers. It's very important that we understand this. It's something that we should not put aside. It's not something that we can just say, well, we're not going to do communion. When someone asks, well, are you, are you going to do communion when you start church? Sure. We're going to do it wisely. We're going to do it safely. That's why we have the individually wrapped communion cups and bread all right from the, uh, the uh, production line. So nobody has touched these at all. So it's safe to do it. But it's important to do it. It's something that should not be missed. It's something that should not be avoided. It's something that should not be neglected. It's a very important thing. And, and be, it began in the beginning days of the church. The birth of the church occurred when? On, on the day of Pentecost. By the way, that's commemorated was just last Sunday. Well, in the early church, we see recorded in the book of Acts, if you want to turn over there, Acts chapter 2, verses 41 to 47, we see basically four fundamental features of the early church. Four fundamental things that if you were part of that church, you would have in your life. And it says here in verse 41 of Acts chapter 2, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Wow. Talk about church growth. Verse 42, and they devoted, devoted themselves. See, and here's where you see these four features coming out. They devoted themselves to the, first of all, the apostles' teaching, and then the fellowship. In other words, they ministered to one another. That's why it's important to come out to a church physically. I mean, it's great to have church in a field somewhere all by yourself, but you're not really fulfilling the role that God intended for the church to have in your life. It's the apostles' teaching. It's fellowship. You get the chance to minister to one another. Uh, also, the breaking of bread, it says, which is communion. And then the prayers, in verse 43, it says, And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. See, there was that fellowship that they had, one with another. Why? Just because they hung out together? No, because of Christ. It was their fellowship in Christ that made their time of gathering so very special. Verse 45, 
and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, this isn't a form of communism, if some people have indicated. That's not what he's saying at all, because it's their possessions, it's their belongings. It's just calling, you know what? As a body, as a church, when we come together, if we see someone in need, it's contingent upon each member to say, hey, what can we do for this person? And thank God we're in a church that takes care of its own people, that's willing to provide for those even during this pandemic, who may not be able to provide for themselves. I don't think I can even count how many times, even in this small church, people have called or emailed or texted me and say, hey, does anybody in the church need anything? Let us know, let us know. And so that's important, that, that part of, of belonging and sharing together. And in verse 46, it says, and day by day, look at what it says, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. Breaking bread, They're, that's the communion. They received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Notice in verse 46, it says day by day they broke bread in their homes. You know, they would go to the temple, but they would also, what? They would go to people's houses. They would have fellowship one with another. See, in the early days of the church, communion was a daily act almost in the lives of believers. That's how important it was. And the Lord had established that. We see that in Matthew chapter 26, verses 19 to 20, and then 26 to 30. I'll just read those for you. 19 to 20 says, and the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, Matthew 26, verse 19, and they prepared the Passover. See, that's where communion came out of. It came out of the Passover feast. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. Jump down to verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. See, this is something that Jesus had established with his disciples. He took the Passover feast and he transformed it. He blessed it. He made it a time where it acknowledges his sacrifice for the sins of all those who would ever put their faith or trust in Christ. And it has continued throughout the history of the church to be that vital point between the church and the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What's interesting, when you read this text, and even back in, in 1 Corinthians, you begin to realize that there's something in common with Christians around the world. It doesn't matter even what their theology is. Most Christians, practically all Christians, no matter what they call themselves, Catholic, Lutheran, Baptist, Independent, whatever, all of them have in common, generally, the celebration of the Lord's table or the celebration of communion commemorating the death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, they all may have different meanings or different theology behind their understanding of what happens at the communion table. For instance, Catholics believe in transubstantiation. Big word. What's it mean? It basically means that when the priest is on the altar and he takes the bread and the wine and he blesses it, that he has a miraculous ability to change those uh, Eucharistic elements by consecrating them, and they literally become the body and blood of Jesus Christ while keeping the appearances of bread and wine. They really believe that when, that's why the, in the Catholic Church you have an altar. We don't have an altar here. We have a platform that people come up and just so you can hear us better, but we don't have an altar 
Uh, I remember growing up in the Catholic Church. Boy, if you crossed in front of the altar, you had to genuflect and do the sign of the cross and all kinds of things, and you never went up there. The altar boys and the priests went up there. That was it. Big marble slab, and they had an altar, and the priest during communion would take the host, and he'd reach up into, up into the heavens, and literally what they believe is they're pulling Christ out of heaven to sacrifice him anew on their altar, and they do that daily. That's what the Catholic Mass is all about. That's why it's such a damning theology, because that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that on the cross, what did Jesus say? When he was done, when he sacrificed, and it was over, and he was about to die, his last words were what? It is finished. It is finished. We have to be reminded that communion is not a time where someone turns the bread and the, the juice into the body of Christ. They're, they're mere symbols. So the Catholics believe in transubstantiation. The priest actually has the supernatural power to do that. Lutherans, on the other hand, believe in consubstantiation. Well, what is that? That the actual sub substance, the presence, and the combination of the, the elements and the body and blood of Christ with the, the bread and the wine, they, they believe that somehow they're supernaturally brought together with the literal body and blood of Christ. Well, most Reformed churches, most Baptist churches, independents would believe that the bread and the juice are mere symbols of Christ's death. And a lot of Christians, by the way, don't even understand today how, where the communion came from. That it came from the Passover, the Jewish celebration of Passover. A lot of believers don't even understand that. See, there's a tremendous amount of difference when it comes to understanding communion, celebrating the bread and the cup. But my point is most Christians celebrate it at some point. So in Corinth, what happened is you had some believers who would go to these pagan feasts, these idol-worshiping dens of sin, because they felt they had the Christian liberty to do so. They would go there, and they would go to their worship services, their pagan, their feasts and everything, and then they would show up for communion at the church. And Paul says, wait a minute. He had to address the inconsistency that was going on within the church of Corinth. And so communion becomes this basis for Paul's entire argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And he basically is arguing that a believer should avoid idolatry. You should flee from idolatry. He argues that it should be avoided because of the meaning of communion, the meaning of the Lord's table, the fact that you're joining in fellowship with Christ, that you're commemorating what Christ has done for you. It's not a good thing to go out then and participate in what some stupid idol, what they believe an idol or a pagan god would do. That's inconsistent. And so he brings up the, the point there, your first outline. Hopefully you've downloaded the outline or you have it in your email. The problem of communion. He brings it up to the Corinthians. Look at what it says there in verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation or fellowship, communion, in the blood of Christ? The bread we break is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Notice he says that we bless, that we break. See, we have to come and understand our realization of what the bread and the cup teach us. That word participation there is the same word that we would use for communion, koinonia, or fellowship. Uh, we read it before in Matthew chapter 26, where the bread represents the body of Christ. The blood represents, or the juice represents the blood of Christ. And those are symbols of Christ's death. And Paul brings this idea of fellowship up again, even in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. See, this was heavy on his heart for these people. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 to 18, listen to what he says. He says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. See, he's directing that to some of these Corinthians that were going out and fellowshipping with these pagans, these unbelievers in these feasts. He says, for what partnership or fellowship or communion has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What God, what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Verse 17, therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. What is God saying? Corinthians, he's saying through the Apostle Paul, yeah, you have a lot of Christian liberty, but don't you dare use that Christian liberty to go out there and fellowship with those who are worshiping idols. So Paul is concerned with the Corinthians coming together for communion after partaking in a pagan feast or the worship of idols. It says they're the cup of blessing. That we bless, is it not a participation or fellowship in the blood of Christ? See, we, we have this precious relationship with the Lord. I mean, he is one with us. We are one with him. And it's because of his death, that's what made it possible to forgive our sins. So how in the world would we combine that with idolatry? When we have the very spirit of God living within us, why would we go out and try to fellowship with those that hate God, with those that worship idols? And we looked in depth at what idol worship was and what idols were last week. You can get that message if you want. We're not going to go into that today. But we have to go back and we have to understand where did communion come from? It came from the Jewish Passover meal. Now, if you do any study on that, you, you understand that there were four cups during that meal. Uh, our text in Matthew and in Luke 22 refers to the first cup, which was called the cup of thanksgiving. It says in Luke 22:17, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. Well, what is the cup of blessing that's mentioned here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10? Well, it was the name given to the third cup in the Passover meal. And that was after they ate the meal, by the way. It was referred to also as the cup, the cup of redemption. It reminded the Jews of when they had to put that blood on the top of the door and their side posts so that the angel of death would pass over their home and not kill their firstborn. You remember that judgment that came. And the Egyptian homes, by the way, that did not apply the blood, what happened to their firstborn? They were killed including Pharaoh's own household. His firstborn was, was killed. And so that blood was applied to the doorpost. It was a picture of redemption. That we have been, what's it mean to redeem? It means to buy back. I remember growing up back east, we had something that was called uh, S&H Green Stamps. And you'd go to the supermarket, and after you bought something, they'd crank out all these stamps. Sometimes you'd have rolls of stamps. And you'd take them home, and you'd find these books, and you'd paste them all in the books. And then once you got them all pasted in there, you could send them in or take them back and redeem them for something. You know, it was a piece of Tupperware or something. It was kind of crazy. But I remember people doing that a lot. S&H green stamps. Well, that's what redemption means. It means to, to buy back. And so here we see that this, this cup, this cup of blessing, the third cup, was referred to also as the cup of redemption. It reminded them that they were bought. And it should remind us that we were bought with a price. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. 
We read part of this. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? For you are not your own, Paul writes them. When we went through that in 1 Corinthians 6. For you were bought, what? With a price. So what does he say? Glorify God in your body. In other words, yeah, you have a lot of Christian liberty, Corinthians. You can do a lot of things as long as it's not forbidden in Scripture. But don't use your Christian liberty to get right up to the edge of sin. You should use your Christian liberty to do all things for the glory of God. Do all for the glory of God. How can you on one hand, what Paul is saying is, how can you on one hand, Corinthian, say that you're a committed follower of Christ, that you believe that the, the blood of Christ has forgiven you of your sins, and then you walk away from the communion table after you remember that and you go over to a pagan feast and you fall back into your old ways. He was concerned about that. But you know what? There's people like that every, in every age. There's people like that today in the church. They come to church and they feel that somehow by being here, it balances things out. And when they walk out of the church, they go out in the world and they live like the devil. But what it basically means here is that the cup which God has blessed or the cup which Christ has blessed, and you remember at that we read in Matthew, the Last Supper, that night Jesus took the cup and he what? What's it, what did he do? He blessed it. In other words, it was a cup. It wasn't some fancy cup. It's just a cup that they drank out of. We don't know what kind of cup it was. But it was just, just a simple cup. But all of a sudden it became what? Something special. Why? Because he blessed it. He blessed it. It stopped being something mundane that they did all the time. And it became something very sacred because Jesus Christ himself set it apart as something very special. He blessed it. And so the cup of blessing is the communion cup. Now, we don't just use one cup nowadays. I remember growing up in the Catholic Church, they'd have one cup up front and they'd dip the host in and put it on your tongue. Many of you probably remember that process. I never thought about it at the time, but I thought, boy, you know, when I grew a little older, I thought, ah, how gross is that? And there were some churches, they'd actually drink from the cup. And then the priest would take his little hanky and wipe it off, and the next person would drink from it. I mean, can you imagine doing that today? Especially not now, right, with this virus going on. That would be a nightmare. Well, rest assured, we have individually wrapped and prepackaged communion cups for you with a little wafer right on, so on top for you today. So there's no fear of that. We're not going to use one cup. We, I don't think we'd have a cup big enough, to be honest with you. But it says there that he blessed it. And you know what? Back in Corinthians, what's it say? It says the cup of blessing that we bless. That we bless. One thing we always do before we partake of communion is what do we do? We give thanks. We bless it. That's what we do. We say a prayer of thanks. And by the way, the word bless, there are several words, but one of the words used for the word bless, eucharisto, from which we get eucharist. It means to give thanks. It is to thank God for that cup that represents the blood of Christ. And so the cup of blessing is the one that the Lord blessed. He set it apart. And it's the same cup that we bless and we thank God for. Well, we not only see here our realization of what the bread and the cup teach, but we also see in verse 17 that even relates to our relationship to the Lord. It says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, it says, for we all partake of one bread. Uh, if you do any studying on this, you'll find that the Passover meal, you always break from just one piece of the, the matzah bread that they use. What does the bread represent? It represents 
what? The body of Christ. And we all break off part of that. You know, the illustration kind of breaks down the way we do communion nowadays because you have a bunch of little pieces of bread. They're all individual. But here it says there's one bread, one body. What does the body represent? It represents the body of Christ. Think of John chapter 6, verse 35. It says, Jesus said to them, I am the, the what? The bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes, believes in me shall never thirst. And then you look down at, at John 6, 47. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. You notice that he says, whoever believes, whoever believes. You know, a lot of people who are reformed, and, and I would say we're, we're close to that here. We're reformed in, in a lot of senses in our theology. But sometimes we get so caught up in the sovereignty of God, we get so caught up in election that we become fatalistic in our teaching of salvation. Jesus himself says, whoever, that means whoever, <laughs> believes has eternal life. It opens up the gates. Now we understand that those who believe are the only ones that are going to believe are the ones that are drawn by God himself. But, you know, we can't Pretend to believe that all these things just flow together in our minds. Sometimes there's a tension there between the volition of men and the sovereignty of God. That's okay. God brings it together perfectly in his, in his time, in his plan, in his purpose. But he says, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. <laughs> That's what Jesus said. Verse 50, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. This is Christ announcing his own deity. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. In other words, he's going to offer himself on Calvary as a payment for the sins of all those who would believe on his name. I go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul wants these Corinthians to understand they need to avoid wrong relationships and wrong associations that have the potential to tear them down. See, if our goal is not to win people to Christ, then you have to stop and you have to ask yourself, why are you hanging around these people? Why do we listen to what they listen to? Why are we so concerned about what they think? I mean, the truth of the matter is simply this, beloved. This world is not our home. We're just passing through. The Bible says that we have been bought with a price. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are considered aliens and strangers in this world. I mean, why are we so tempted to compromise our Christian values? instead of winning people to Christ? Why are so many Christians' behavior different when they're at church among God's people than when they're out at their job or out in the world? Why is that? Well, maybe it's the, the pressure we all feel, a pressure to conform, peer pressure, we want to be accepted, so we compromise, or maybe we don't say anything at all. And so the fear of being accepted silences our witness for Christ. We're afraid that people won't like us or accept us if we actually do what Jesus Christ told us to do, commanded us to do, and be the salt and the light in this dark sin-stained world. Sometimes we lose our priority. And all of a sudden, when we're with them, we're doing what they do. And we're compromising our faith, and we're, we're dragging our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, down into the muck of sin with us. 
And we're caring nothing about it. We're just hoping that somehow we can get out of the situation and, and then simply go back to church the next week and hopefully that'll balance everything out. May God help us. Watch out. Be careful. The Bible tells us the following, that we should be examining ourselves, especially the time of communion. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves and see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. And then in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, 28, he says, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. So when we come to this table, when we come to communion time, this is a time of self-examination. I can recall several times in the years that I've been in ministry after communion Sunday, somebody in the church inevitably will come to me and say, oh, did you, did you see that so-and-so had communion or they took communion and that's none of our business. That's between them and God, frankly. Now, we want to indicate to people that may be visiting, that maybe they don't know Christ, that this communion table is for believers. And if you're not a believer, you're not a follower of Christ, you've never trusted him for salvation, it really doesn't mean anything to you. So we would recommend you don't participate. No one's going to judge you for that. But I'll tell you what, if you're not a believer, or even worse, if you're a believer and you have unconfessed sin in your heart, sin that you're not willing to confess to God, in other words, you're continuing to practice sin, and you come to this table, you better watch out. Because God says that's, you shouldn't be doing that, and that's exactly what the Corinthians were doing. They were going out and playing in the world and then coming together as the body of Christ and participating in communion. And Paul had some very dire warnings for them. Some of them even died as a result of partaking of the Lord's table in an illicit manner. So it says, let a person examine himself. You don't examine your neighbor, you don't examine your husband, you don't examine your wife, you don't even examine your kids. Some people say, well, can children take communion? I think if, if kids are of the understanding of their own salvation, and they have come to Christ, and you have seen that evidenced in their lives, then sure, I don't have a problem with that. But just be careful. You know, you don't want to, you always want to be able to validate your child's salvation. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 4, it says, But let each one test or examine his own work. See, that's what we're called to do, especially at this time. Well, the last point here is he brings up the reference to Israel when he's dealing with communion. Verse 18, consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifice participants in the altar? See, when you look back at the offering system in Israel, what they did is not only the priests ate of the sacrificial meal, but they would even distribute it among the people. They did the same. And so he says, consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants, or fellowship in the altar? They would call it a fellowship offering. It comes from our, the, the original Greek word koinonia. And so when we come together as the body of Christ for communion, we want to make sure that we do this as often as we can until he returns. And so... As we prepare our hearts for our time of communion, I just want to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 32. And then we'll have a word of prayer and then we will partake in our communion together. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this, is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then he says this, verse 27, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. This is very serious. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Once again, self-examination. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for our message today from the book of Corinthians chapter 10. Thank you, Lord, that it ha has... It's intended to prepare our hearts for our communion time together as the body of Christ. Lord, we're thankful that we can meet once again here physically and worship you together corporately as the body of Christ. And Father, we just pray for this time of communion that we will be participating in, that we will examine our own hearts. Lord, if there's any sin that is yet to be unconfessed or repented of, that we would do so. And Lord, your son and his sacrifice is ready and willing to cover that sin, forgive us of that sin. And Lord, we're, we're called that if we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We are thankful for that. Lord, maybe there's someone listening to this message who's yet to put their faith, their trust in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for their salvation. Father, I pray for them. I pray that you would allow them to yield their will to yours that you would draw them to yourself, that you would do that work of transforming their heart from a heart of stone into a heart of flesh, that you would grant them eternal life. Lord, that you would turn them, transform them into a follower, a believer of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray that they would turn from their sin to the Savior. Father, then and only then does this table of communion mean anything. This bread and this juice just represent the blood and body of our Lord Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made on our behalf. And so for that, we're very grateful and we thank you that we can participate in our communion time together. Lord, we continue to pray for our country. We pray that you would grant wisdom to those who rule over us, Lord, that you would give them the answers they need to solve the problems that are great. Lord, but we know that it all boils down to one problem. It's not a virus. It's not racism. It boils down to one problem in the heart of every human being, and that being sin. And so, Father, we pray, even for those rioting in the streets, that you would cause them to pause Cause them to reflect on their actions. Cause them to repent of their actions and turn back to you, their creator. Lord, we think of those who have been harmed during this time, whether it be the riots or the virus. Lord, we just pray that your grace would be sufficient for them, that somehow you would use the bad in their lives for your glory, that they would turn to you for healing, both physically and spiritually. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.
Oh,